Chapter Five of The Two Heroines of Plumplington by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dr. Freeborn and Philip Hughes. Times went on at Plumplington without any change for a fortnight, that is, without any change for the better. But in truth the ill-humour both of Mr. Greenmantle and of Mr. Peppercorn had increased to such a pitch as to add an additional blackness to the general haziness and drizzle and gloom of the November weather. It was now the end of November, and Dr. Freeborn was becoming a little uneasy because the Christmas attributes for which he was desirous were still altogether out of sight. He was a man specially anxious for the mundane happiness of his parishioners, and who would take any amount of personal trouble to ensure it. But he was in fault, perhaps, in this, that he considered that everybody ought to be happy just because he told them to be so. He belonged to the Church of England, certainly, but he had no dislike to Papists or Presbyterians or dissenters in general as long as they would arrange themselves under his banner as freebornites. And he had such force of character that in Plumplington, beyond which he was not ambitious that his influence should extend, he did in general prevail. But at the present moment he was aware that Mr. Greenmantle was in open mutiny. That Peppercorn would yield he had strong hope. Peppercorn he knew to be a weak, good fellow, whose affection for his daughter would keep him right at last. But until he could extract that poker from Mr. Greenmantle's throat, he knew that nothing could be done with him. At the end of the fortnight Mr. Greenmantle called at the rectory about half an hour before dinner-time, when he knew that the doctor would be found in his study before going up to dress for dinner. "'I hope I am not intruding, Dr. Freeborn,' he said. But the rust of the poker was audible in every syllable as it fell from his mouth. Not in the least. I've a quarter of an hour before I go and wash my hands. It will be ample. In a quarter of an hour I shall be able sufficiently to explain my plans. Then there was a pause, as though Mr. Greenmantle had expected that the explanation was to begin with the doctor. I am thinking the banker continued after a while, of taking my family abroad to some foreign residence. Now it was well known to Dr. Freeborn that Mr. Greenmantle's family consisted exclusively of Emily. "'Going to take Emily away?' he said. "'Such is my purpose, and myself also.' "'What are they to do at the bank?' "'That will be the worst of it, Dr. Freeborn.' The bank will be the great difficulty. But you don't mean that you are going for good. Only for a prolonged foreign residence, that is to say, for six months. For forty years I have given but very little trouble to the directors. For forty years I have been at my post, and have never suggested any prolonged absence. If the directors cannot bear with me after forty years, I shall think them unreasonable men." Now, in truth, Mr. Greenmantle knew that the directors would make no opposition to anything that he might propose, but he always thought it well to be armed with some premonitory grievance. 
In fact, my pecuniary matters are so arranged that should the directors refuse, I shall go all the same. You mean that you don't care a straw for the directors. I do not mean to postpone my comfort to their views, or my daughter's. But why does your daughter's comfort depend on your going away? I should have thought that she would have preferred Plumplington at present. That was true, no doubt, and Mr. Greenmantle felt, well, that he was not exactly telling the truth in putting the burden of his departure upon Emily's comfort. If Emily, at the present crisis of affairs, were carried away from Plumplington for six months, her comfort would certainly not be increased. She had already been told that she was to go, and she had clearly understood why. "'I mean as to her future welfare,' said Mr. Greenmantle, very solemnly. Dr. Freeborn did not care to hear about the future welfare of young people. What had to be said as to their eternal welfare, he thought himself quite able to say. After all, there was something of benevolent paganism in his disposition. He liked better to deal with their present happiness, so that there was nothing immoral in it. As to the world to come, he thought that the fathers and mothers of his younger flock might safely leave that consideration to him. Emily is a remarkably good girl. That's my idea of her. Mr. Greenmantle was offended even at this. Dr. Freeborn had no right, just at present, to tell him that his daughter was a good girl. Her goodness had been greatly lessened by the fact that in regard to her marriage she was anxious to run counter to her father. She is a good girl, at least I hope so. Do you doubt it? Well, no, or rather yes, perhaps I ought to say no as to her life in general. I should think so. I don't know what a father may want, but I should think so. I never knew her miss church yet, either morning or evening. As far as that goes, she does not neglect her duties. What is the matter with her that she is to be taken off to some foreign climate for prolonged residence? The doctor, among his other idiosyncrasies, entertained an idea that England was the proper place for all Englishmen, and English women, who were not driven out of it by stress of pecuniary circumstances. Has she got a bad throat, or a weak chest? We cannot all hope to have such perfect health as you possess. I have never frittered it away, said the doctor, by prolonged residence in foreign parts. This quotation of his own words was most harassing to Mr. Greenmantle, and made him more than once inclined to bounce in anger out of the doctor's study. I suppose the truth is that Miss Emily is disposed to run counter to your wishes in regard to her marriage, and that she is to be taken away not from consumption or a weak throat, but from a dangerous lover. Here Mr. Greenmantle's face became black as thunder. It is not on the score of her own health that I propose to move her, said Mr. Greenmantle. You did say her comfort. Of course that may mean that she likes the French way of living. I did hear that we were to lose your services for a time, 
because you could not trust to your own health. It is failing me a little, Dr. Freeborn. I am already very near sixty. Ten years my junior, said the doctor. You see, Greenmantle, there is no good in our talking about this matter unless we understand each other. I do not intend to give my girl to the young man upon whom she thinks her affections rest. I suppose she knows. No, Dr. Freeborn, it is often the case that a young lady does not know. She only fancies, and where that is the case, absence is the best remedy. You have said that Emily is a good girl. A very good girl. I am delighted to hear you so express yourself. But obedience to parents is a trait in character which is generally much thought of. I have put by a little money, Dr. Freeborn. All Plumplington knows that. And I shall choose that it shall go somewhat in accordance with my own wishes. The young man of whom she is thinking, Philip Hughes, an excellent fellow. I've known him all my life. He doesn't come to church quite so regularly as he ought, but that will be mended when he is married. Hasn't got a shilling in the world, continued Mr. Greenmantle, finishing his sentence. Nor is he just, just, just what I should choose for the husband of my daughter. I think that when I have said so, he should take my word for it. That's not the way of the world, you know. It's the way of my world, Dr. Freeborn. It isn't often that I speak out, but when I do, it's about something that I've a right to speak of. I've heard this affair of my daughter talked about all over the town. There was one Mr. Peppercorn came to me. One Mr. Peppercorn? Why, Hickory Peppercorn is as well known in Plumplington as the church steeple. I beg your pardon, Dr. Freeborn, but I don't find any reason in that for his interfering about my daughter. I must say that I took it as a great piece of impertinence. Goodness gracious me, if a man's own daughter isn't to be considered peculiar to himself, I don't know what is. If he'd asked you about your daughters before they were married... Dr. Freeborn did not answer this, but declared to himself that neither Mr. Peppercorn nor Mr. Greenmantle could have taken such a liberty. Mr. Greenmantle evidently was not aware of it, but in truth Dr. Freeborn and his family belonged altogether to another set. So at least Dr. Freeborn told himself. I've come to you now, Dr. Freeborn, because I have not liked to leave Plumplington for a prolonged residence in foreign parts without acquainting you. I should have thought that unkind. You are very good, and as my daughter will of course go with me, and as this idea of a marriage on her part must be entirely given up, the emphasis was here placed with much weight on the word entirely. I should take it as a great kindness if you would let my feelings on the subject be generally known. I will own that I should not have cared to have my daughter talked about, only that the mischief has been done. In a little place like this, said the doctor, a young lady's marriage will always be talked about. But the young lady in this case isn't going to be married. What does she say about it herself? 
I haven't asked her, Dr. Freeborn. I don't mean to ask her. I shan't ask her. If I understand her feelings, Greenmantle, she is very much set upon it. I cannot help it. You mean to say, then, that you intend to condemn her to unhappiness, merely because this young man hasn't got as much money at the beginning of his life as you have at the end of yours? He hasn't got a shilling, said Mr. Greenmantle. Then why can't you give him a shilling? What do you mean to do with your money? Here Mr. Greenmantle again looked offended. You come and ask me, and I am bound to give you my opinion for what it's worth. What do you mean to do with your money? You're not the man to found a Hiram's hospital with it. As sure as you are sitting there, your girl will have it when you're dead. Don't you know that she will have it? I hope so. And because she's to have it, she's to be made wretched about it all her life? She's to remain an old maid? or else to be married to some well-born pauper, in order that you may talk about your son-in-law? Don't get into a passion, Greenmantle, but only think whether I'm not telling you the truth. Hughes isn't a spendthrift. I have made no accusation against him. Nor a gambler, nor a drunkard, nor is he the sort of man to treat a wife badly. He's there at the bank, so that you may keep him under your own eye. What more on earth can a man want in a son-in-law? Blood, thought Mr. Greenmantle to himself, an old family name, county associations, and a certain something which he felt quite sure that Philip Hughes did not possess. And he knew well enough that Dr. Freeborn had married his own daughters to husbands who possessed these gifts, but he could not throw the fact back into the rector's teeth. He was in some way conscious that the rector had been entitled to expect so much for his girls, and that he, the banker, was not so entitled. The same idea passed through the rector's mind, but the rector knew how far the banker's courage would carry him. "'Good night, Mr. Freeborn,' said Mr. Greenmantle suddenly. "'Good night, Greenmantle.' Shan't I see you again before you go? To this the banker made no direct answer, but at once took his leave. That man is the greatest ass in all Plumplington, the doctor said to his wife, within five minutes of the time of which the hall door was closed behind the banker's back. He's got an idea into his head about having some young county swell for his son-in-law. Harry Gresham. Harry is too idle to earn money by a profession, and therefore wants Greenmantle's money to live upon. There's Peppercorn wants something of the same kind for Polly. People are such fools. But Mrs. Freeborn's two daughters had been married much after the same fashion. They had taken husbands nearly as old as their father, because Dr. Freeborn and his wife had thought much of blood. On the next morning, Philip Hughes was summoned by the banker into the more official of the two back parlors. Since he had presumed to signify his love for Emily, he had never been asked to enjoy the familiarity of the other chamber. Mr. Hughes, you may probably have heard it asserted that I am about to leave Plumplington for a prolonged residence in foreign parts. 
Mr. Hughes had heard it, and so declared. Yes, Mr. Hughes, I am about to proceed to the south of France. My daughter's health requires attention, and indeed, on my own behalf, I am in need of some change as well. I have not as yet officially made known my views to the directors. There will be, I should think, no impediment with them. I cannot say, but at any rate I shall go. After forty years of service in the bank, I cannot think of allowing the peculiar views of men who are all younger than myself to interfere with my comfort. I shall go. I suppose so, Mr. Greenmantle. I shall go. I say it without the slightest disrespect for the board, but I shall go. Will it be permanent, Mr. Greenmantle? That is a question which I am not prepared to answer at a moment's notice. I do not propose to move my furniture for six months. It would not, I believe, be within the legal power of the directors to take possession of the bank house for that period. I am quite sure they would not wish it. Perhaps my assurance on that subject may be of more avail. At any rate, they will not remove me. I should not have troubled you on this subject, were it not that your position in the bank must be affected, more or less. I suppose that I could do the work for six months, said Philip Hughes. But this was a view of the case which did not at all suit Mr. Greenmantle's mind. His own duties at Plumplington had been, to his thinking, the most important ever confided to a bank manager. There was a peculiarity about Plumplington of which no one knew the intricate details but himself. The man did not exist who could do the work as he had done it. But still he had determined to go, and the work must be entrusted to some man of lesser competence. I should think it probable, he said, that some confidential clerk will be sent over from Barchester. Your youth, Mr. Hughes, is against you. It is not for me to say what line the directors may determine to take. I know the people better than anyone can do in Barchester. Just so, but you will excuse me if I say you may for that reason be the less efficient. I have thought it expedient, however, to tell you of my views. If you have any steps that you wish to take, you can now take them. Then Mr. Greenmantle paused, and had apparently brought the meeting to an end. But there was still something which he wished to say. He did think that, by a word spoken in due season, by a strong determined word, he might succeed in putting an end to this young man's vain and ambitious hopes. He did not wish to talk to the young man about his daughter, but if the strong word might avail, here was the opportunity. Mr. Hughes, he began. Yes, sir. There is a subject on which perhaps it would be well that I should be silent. Philip, who knew the manager thoroughly, was now aware of what was coming, and thought it wise that he should say nothing at the moment. I do not know that any good can be done by speaking of it. Philip still held his tongue. It is a matter, no doubt, of extreme delicacy, of the most extreme delicacy, I may say. If I go abroad as I intend, I shall as a matter of course take with me Miss Greenmantle. 
I suppose so. I shall take with me Miss Greenmantle. It is not to be supposed that when I go abroad for a prolonged sojourn in foreign parts that I should leave Miss Greenmantle behind me. No doubt she will accompany you. Miss Greenmantle will accompany me, and it is not improbable that my prolonged residence may, in her case, be still further prolonged. It may be possible that she should link her lot in life to some gentleman whom she may meet in those realms. I hope not, said Philip. I do not think that you are justified, Mr. Hughes, in hoping anything in reference to my daughter's fate in life. All the same, I do. It is very, very... I do not wish to use strong language, and therefore I will not say impertinent. What am I to do when you tell me that she is to marry a foreigner? I never said so. I never thought so. A foreigner? Good heavens, I spoke of a gentleman whom she might chance to meet in those realms. Of course I meant an English gentleman. The truth is, Mr. Greenmantle, I don't want your daughter to marry anyone unless she can marry me. A most selfish proposition. It's a sort of matter in which a man is apt to be selfish, and it's my belief that if she were asked she'd say the same thing. Of course you can take her abroad, and you can keep her there as long as you please. I can, and I mean to do it. I am utterly powerless to prevent you, and so is she. In this contention between us I have only one point in my favor. You have no point in your favor, sir. The young lady's good wishes. If she be not on my side, why then I am nowhere. In that case you needn't trouble yourself to take her out of Plumplington. But if— You may withdraw, Mr. Hughes, said the banker. The interview is over. Then Philip Hughes withdrew. But as he went he shut the door after him in a very confident manner. End of chapter 5 Recording by Arnold Banner Thurmond, North Carolina.